Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we continued our study through the book of Proverbs as we took a look at the power of the tongue with Pastor Chris. This week, we're going to be hearing from Pastor Chris again as we take a look at life's trials. This is going to be our last study through the book of Proverbs. We thank you for listening along with us, and we hope you stick around for our next study next week. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Chris. Thank you, Brian, for that. Imagine there as he's rinsing from head to toe, starting at his top, scrubbing down, he would feel those indentations, those places where stones had been thrown at him with the attempt of taking his life. The thoughts of being pulled out of the city by the Jews for preaching the gospel and being stoned nearly to death. As he makes his way to his face, filling his septum, having been broken from being beaten by robbers, by thieves, by people of his own blood and those of the Gentiles, going and making his way round back, the ridges, mountainous, filled with scar tissue, scar upon scar upon scar upon scar, where the rods, the whips, the sticks would have beaten his flesh over and over and over again. And even then, Paul the apostle would say, that wasn't even the toughest part. The pressure of the churches, the health of Christ's church weighs upon me daily and Satan himself buffets me. I am being attacked night and day spiritually physically, emotionally, by Satan himself, broken, beaten, and there he is crying out to Christ for grace. Not once, not twice, not three times. Jesus responds and says, my grace is sufficient for you. There is power in your weakness. Here's the reality. Bad things happen to good people a righteous, holy apostle shipwrecked a day and a night in the sea, beaten by robbers, beaten by countrymen, frisked, ostracized, neglected, nearly assassinated on multiple times, and then eventually having his head lopped off by the Roman Empire. And yet Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. Every 1.8 seconds, someone in this world dies. That means in my sermon, about 80 people will die. Hopefully not because of my sermon, but nonetheless, every 1.8 seconds, someone gets a phone call and they've just had the worst day of their life. Here are facts. We live in a fallen world. And here are facts that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. We are not promised easy times. We are not promised good times. We are promised persecution, suffering, and hardship. But those who continue until the end, they will be blessed. 
And so this morning, we're going to ponder the Proverbs for the, for, for the last time. We're going to go on to a, a new sermon series starting next week, Jesus and the Old Testament. We're going to spend six months breaking down how God shows history is all about his story. But we're going to close this series right where we finished or right where we started. Fearing the Lord. How do you and I overcome hardship? How do we come over, overcome trials? How do we get over the crises of our lives? The Bible tells us a very simple solution, but we must be obedient in it. So before we flip open to the Proverbs, we probably don't have our, our, our uh, scripture up. Would you turn to 2 Kings chapter 18? 2 Kings chapter 18. Now here's the scenario. There are two kings that are rulers over two kingdoms. You have the King Hosea there in the northern kingdom of Israel, and you have King Hezekiah down there at the southern kingdom of Judah. Two kings, two rulers who make two very drastic decisions about one, the same problem. They have a major problem brewing between the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and it is the kingdom of Assyria, a massive empire who were brutal to their people. They would fillet people, literally like a potato, peel a person's skin off and allow them to live as long as possible so that they can die through infection. They were commonly known for putting fish, fish hooks in people's mouths that were tied to chains and they would march people 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles until one person would fall because of, you know, they're just wore out. And that hook tied to that mouth would take out everybody's face with them. They were notoriously an evil people. And so that's the stage of 2 Kings chapter 18. And we pick it up in verse one. Now it came about in the third year of Hosea, the son of Eliah, king of Israel, one king over the northern kingdom of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king, our second king of Judah. And listen to his biography. It's incredible. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David, David's had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze, bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until these days, the son of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among all those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him. He kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. So far, so good. Godly man, godly king, ruling in a godly way, taking out idolatry, taking out paganism, leading the country in the way of the Lord. He's doing great. But bad things happen to good people. 
Verse seven goes on and he says, he rebelled against the king of Assyria and he did not serve him. He defeated the Philistines at Gaza and its territories from watchtower to fortified city. Now in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. At the end of the three years, they captured it. In the sixth year, Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was captured. So northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah, in the middle, Samaria. The Assyrians come from that area of Iran or Middle East, and they come and divide and conquer. They take out Samaria, and now their northern kingdom is isolated from the southern kingdom. They completely cut it off at the middle, and now they move north to take out the northern kingdom. Two kings, two very different responses to the same problem. Look at how the king of Israel reacted. Verse 11, then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and put them in Halah, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, they would never, they would neither listen nor do. Israel had a crisis. You and I have a crisis. Israel had a decision. You and I have decisions. Do we repent and seek God or do we take matters into our own hands? Are we going to fix our own problems? Are we going to be the captain of our own ships? Israel refused to bend the knee. They would not repent. They went out with sword and with shield and with armor and with horse, and they fell. Completely wiped out. Now Hezekiah's turn. Assyria takes out the northern kingdom. They make their way south. Hezekiah first pays them off. It's not good enough. They come back again and they surround Jerusalem. 185,000 soldiers. Shennacherib, the uh, ambassador of Assyria, begins to ridicule Hezekiah, ridicule Jerusalem, ridicule Judah, and blaspheme God. Now, what would you do if you were Hezekiah truly? You look out. And there's 185,000 armed soldiers. You look at your wife or your husband or your children, your best friend in your family, and you know, by tomorrow, we are going to fall in the most powerful and the most evil force in the world. What would you do? Fight. And just like Israel, be wiped away. You made my point perfectly. In our sin nature, we want to do things our way in our own power. And like Sergio and the Israelites, you will fall. You'll be cut off at the knees. Hezekiah looks at the army, hears the blasphemes. And in chapter 19 and verse 1, it says, And when King Hezekiah heard it, 
he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Sackcloth and ashes was as a, a place of repentance and complete humility before God. He could have went to the armory, taken power and might into his own hands and fell. He went before the house of the Lord and he was saved. So how do we overcome trials? Seeing that we're going to get laid off at some point. The, the, just like a milk cart and you and I are going to have some kind of expiration date. You and I are going to put people we love in the ground. All of these things will absolutely happen. How can we be a Hezekiah and not a Hosea? How can we be overcomers of our trials and not to succumb to them? The answer is in Proverbs chapter 14, starting at verse 26. If you don't have, uh, or if you, we don't have the things up there, so you got to get your Bible this time. Pull your, turn on your Bibles or flip to in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 14, starting at verse 26. Going to read 26, 27, and one more verse. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence, and his children will have refuge. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may over, uh, avoid the snares of death. And in Proverbs chapter 10, And verse 29, the fear of the Lord leads to life so that one may sleep satisfied, untouched by evil. So God gives us a promise here. We will, number one, have confidence. Number two, have safety as his refuge. Number three, have the fountain of life. And number four, sleep well by avoiding evil if we fear the Lord. So who here has been in some kind of trial where you've just been wiped out? Any of us? All of us? It's not, it's not when, it's if, right? Or it's not if, it's when. What happens when you get that phone call, when you get the news? What happens? Seriously. Your fear goes through the roof and your security, your safety, your sleep, your comfort, and your rest go out the window. And God says this, you bring that unhealthy fear and you lay it before me. And everything you've lost because of that crisis, your safety, your peace, your security, I will give it back to you tenfold. And I was going to say that, so I know know you're operating in the spirit. I will give it back to you. You're going to fear anyway. Healthy fear, unhealthy fear. One leads to life, one leads to death. So what's the difference? Unhealthy fear is a fear that drives you away from God. Anxiety, depression, sadness, moodiness, whatever it is. I have to fix this. So let me go to substances. I have to fix this. So let me go to pornography. I have to get my mind off of it. So let me go do something else. It drives us to unhealthy lifestyles because our unhealthy fear has driven us from Christ. When you look at the rich young ruler, 
He had everything. Everything the world says, that's the way you should live. He was powerful. He was young. He was prominent. He had a ton of money and he was moral. He wasn't some rich, terrible dude. He was a moral man. And he came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There was a lack in his soul. He was missing something. And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And he says, I've done those things since my youth. What do I still lack? And Jesus, having compassion on him, says, go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. Come, follow after me. And the rich young ruler left sad, for he had many possessions. That is unhealthy fear the fear of losing my safety net financially, the fear of losing my prominence in society, the fear of following after someone where I don't know where the Lord is going to take me. Fear drove him from Christ. It's unhealthy. The fear that the book of Proverbs is talking about is a healthy form of fear. And we're gonna look exactly at what that fear is. So do we have any bakers in the house? Chris, all right, <laughs> praise the Lord, brother. We got one male baker, I love it. <laughs> so you know baking and you know recipes and you understand that if you want the finished product, you gotta stick to the script. If you go off, it's, it's gonna flop one way or it ain't gonna rise or it's gonna taste one way or another. You gotta stick to the script. Now the instructions or the recipe to fear the Lord are three parts. It's one part terror, one part reverence or honor, and one part obedience. That's what the Bible is referring to when it's talking about the fear of the Lord. It has three components. And if you only do two of the three, you are not fearing the Lord. So component number one, terror. Some pastors say like, we aren't to be fearful of the Lord. That's not what the Bible teaches. We are to be terrorized by the person, the being of the Lord because of his power and the ability to judge. We should be fearful of the Lord's judgment and chastening. Remember Jesus called the 12. They didn't choose him, he chose them. And he had given them, Matthew 10, power on high, given them power over spirits, given them power over the sick that they may be able to heal. And he gave them the command, you are going to be sheep amongst wolves. And then he says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Matthew 10, 26. Therefore, do not fear them. That is man who is coming to persecute you, man who is coming to do harm to you or crises or life, life's actions that is going to cause you pain. Do not fear for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. So don't fear the circumstance or the persecution or the trials, verse 27, but rather keep honoring the Lord. Verse 27, what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the rooftops. So don't fear man, Honor the Lord, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear God, who is able to destroy both soul and the body in hell. 
Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father. But it, but the very hairs on your head, sorry, Greg, are all numbered. <laughs> no, you're not too bad, brother. <laughs> so do not fear. You are more valuable than the sparrows. So Jesus says, don't fear the circumstance. Don't fear man. But did I make you self-conscious? I am so sorry. <laughs> I was looking and I was like, Vince has his hat on. I can't call him. I don't see, I don't see my brother Terry out there. Sorry. All right. So Jesus says, don't fear man, but rather uh, honor the Lord and fear God. Why? Because he's the judge of your soul. And what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? I mean, a hundred years is such a long time, but a hundred years compared to a million, compared to a hundred million, compared to eternity is like a drop in the bucket. It's just so small. And so the idea is we are to fear God, not man nor circumstance. And we are to fear his discipline. Look at Proverbs 14, verse 26 again. I'll read it to you. In the fear of the Lord... There is strong confidence. And is anybody there? Proverbs 14, 26. What does it say? And his whom? And his whom? Notice how verse 26 ties two thoughts together. What happens when you fear the Lord? What is your position to God? Child. If you fear the Lord, that means you truly fear the Lord. Your position is child, and God then becomes who? Your father. Now think of Proverbs. We've been talking about focusing on the family. One is one, what is one of the major duties of the parents over the children? Discipline. Remember, we've talked about that over and over and over again. The point of the, the parents is to, one, train up their child in the way they should go. Two, live according to that training up or that message. Number three, discipline their children when they stray off of that mandate. God the Father has told us how to live. Then he sent his son to illustrate how we are to live. And then God as our father then disciplines us when we stray from that mandate. And so as children of God, we should fear the Lord in terror because of his chastening, because of his discipline for our lives. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse four, it says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood and striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation, which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Anybody know what a scourge is? What is a scourge, RG? Yeah, that, we're not talking like a little spanking on the butt. The Lord, when you slip up, will scourge us. Not because he hates us, but because he is desperately in love with us. 
He loves us so well, and he does not want us to fall to the foolishness of our own sin nature. So God will flagellate us. He will smack us upside the head. He'll wake us up in any way possible to drive us to the place where we are back to honoring God. Why? Because his sacrifice to get us that place of righteousness was his son. It was a very big and powerful sacrifice, and it comes with a great weight. Verse 7 goes on, and it says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Why is it important to be legitimate children when it comes to God? Who said that? Inheritance. John, inheritance, the will of the Lord. When you die, we give a will and testament. That's what it's called, a will and testament in which we leave all that we have to those whom we love. When you are a legitimate son, God's will and testament is to give to his children all that he possesses. What does God possess? All things. Give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God's what is God's. What does God own? Everything. And so God's discipline is legitimizing your relationship and position with him. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Why do we fear the Lord? Because his discipline for our lives hurts. I was going to say sucks, but it really doesn't. It brings about a great fruit of righteousness. It brings about peace and obedience. It's just painful. So my advice to all of us, including myself, is this. Throw away sin and get radical with it. If your arm's causing it, causing you to sin, chop it off. If your eye's causing you to sin, pluck it out. Get radical because the chastening of the Lord is something to be feared. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think that's Hebrews 10.31. Not fun. So fearing the Lord is fearing judgment. Here's the second ingredient to fearing God. Does anybody remember it? Reverence and honor. Reverence and honor. So here it is. You come before the Lord. You see God for all that he is. You see him in his glory. You see him in his power. And you begin to tremble. You begin to shake. You begin to say, woe is me. And then you see what the Lord has done for you. And that fear 
begins to turn into adoration. That fear begins to turn into honor. Staying in Hebrews chapter 12, just like we had two kings when two kingdoms with two choices, here in Hebrews chapter 12, we have two mountains and it deals with this idea of reverence and honor. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and a blazing fire and to the darkness and gloom and whirlwind, but to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that who, those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them, for they could not bear the command. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was that sight. Does anybody know what mountain that's being referred to? Now you guys are so sharp. Mount Sinai. And what happens on Mount Sinai? What happens? What does God do? It's a, he gives text messages to human, human beings. Two commandments, right? One stone, a, a message written with his finger. Two stones, message written with his finger. But when it was given, what happened to Sinai? The whole thing was whirlwind and storm and thunder, chaos. The, the place is shaking and everybody began to tremble at the voice of the Lord. And what was given at Sinai? The what? The law. The law. And what does the law not have? Grace and mercy. And so Moses goes on. It goes on in verse uh, 21. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But, verse 22, you have come to the Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriad of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Who's the spirits of the righteous made perfect? Who's that refer to? Who does that refer to? Who has been made right? Yeah, those who are believers. And how did that happen? Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So Abel gave a sacrifice and did it please God? Remember, Cable, Ain and Cable, Abel and Cain? And Cain, he didn't do so well, but Abel did. He shed the blood of the animals. He gave the Lord uh, the offering, and God honored it. Now, what God is saying in our text is this. There's two mountains, one with the law. There's uh, no mercy, no grace. The soul that sins shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. You stick to the script or else you're done. There's fear and there's trembling. And then the author tells us there's a new mountain, a mountain in which God has done something incredible, the Mount Zion, in which there are people who are enrolled in heaven. Those spirits, you and I, who have been made righteous, how through our mediator, 
our defense attorney, our advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. His blood, which was shed, was far better than Abel's because the the blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy our sin. But by the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, we have been forgiven. And now look at the response. You go from fear of God's judgment. Look at what God has done for you. And it, it absolutely falls into this area of honor, respect, love, adoration, worship, thanksgiving, and gratitude for all that God has done. Verse 25 says, see to it then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape, they refused him who warned them on earth. How many people made it out of the wilderness? Not many, right? Moses spoke to them, fear the Lord, Deuteronomy 6. Fear the Lord, Deuteronomy 10. And what did the people do? The exact opposite. So God is saying those people with an earthly messenger, if they collapsed because they would not listen and take heed to the Lord, how much more so us who have heard from heaven? Much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? And his voice shook the earth. But now he promised saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And then verse 28, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we offer to God an acceptable servants with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. What happens when you disrespect fire? The whole place will come down. Our God is a consuming fire, means a fire whose hunger will continue to devour. We must respect and honor the Lord lest we be burnt. And we honor and reverence him because of all that God has done for us. So first part of the recipe is fear, terror of God's judgment and chastening. Number two, reverence, honor. When we see all that the Lord has done for us, we fall to our face in thanksgiving. Who are we that God would look upon us? I mean, seriously, look at your sin. Look at my, think about your sin just this week and how many times we've denied the Lord and how many times we've turned our back on God. And yet God is forever faithful. And who are we? What have we done to earn that grace? Absolutely nothing. So our reverence for God inevitably leads to obedience. There is no other way. If we truly honor and respect someone, we'll do as they say. Remember Isaiah? Isaiah chapter 6. Oh, you guys know it. Isaiah chapter 6. There I was, and I saw whom? No. (laughs) Okay. I'll read it to you. Isaiah chapter six. Let me read it to you. Verse one. In the year the king Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, 
lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Number one, that's terror. This guy is like, OMG, literally, OMG. Like he's shaking in his boots. And you see that in verse five. When I said, or then I said, woe is me, for I am a, a, am a ruined man, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. That's terror. Terror then leads to reverence, honor. We see at the end of verse 5, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and honor then turns into obedience. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And then I said, here am I, send me. <laughs> Here I am, Lord, send me. Fear turns into honor, turns into obedience. It cannot be any other way. Flip over back to Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 39, and we'll look at the verses of obedience. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 29. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the upright, but ruin to the workers of iniquity. The righteous will never be shaken, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. And in Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. So we see two phrases that mean the same thing. Number one, the way of the Lord. And number two, the name of the Lord. So what is the way of the Lord? Anybody know? Not trick question. Obedience. <laughs> Obedience, there you go. You already knew it. I gave you the answer already, man. What is the way of the Lord? Essentially boiled down, it's obedience. The way of the Lord is the path in which the Lord himself takes. That's what it means. And you can see really the, the answer in the text itself. In Proverbs 10, 29, again, it says, the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the, and if anybody has it open, what's that word? Okay, nobody has it open. That's cool. The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the righteous, to the upright. So if the way of the Lord is a stronghold to the righteous, then the way of the Lord must be the path of what? Righteousness. 
Flip that on its head, finishing out the verse, it says, but ruin to the workers of iniquity. So the way of the Lord is the opposite of working iniquity. The way of the Lord is a life of obedience. It is, in other words, congruent with God's character. How God walks and the path in which he takes, our lives are to be congruent or to match that. And then in Proverbs 18 said, it says, and then 18.10 says, and the name of the Lord is a strong tower. And the name of the Lord, again, is the same idea. It's consistent with the Lord's nature. It is consistent with the Lord's will and authority. Whose name do we pray in? Jesus' name. Is that just three magic in Jesus' name? Are those three magical words that we tack on? It means according to his character, his likeness, according to his will for his glory. The apostles or disciples came to Jesus and said, tell us, teach us how to pray. And what did Jesus say? There you go. Our father who is in heaven, who hallowed. Holy be thy name. And immediately after reverencing the name or character of God, what is the next line in that prayer? Thy will be done. Obedience. That's obedience. In the name of the Lord means exactly like Jesus would do it. So if you look at that, you see that the way and the name of the Lord is our strong tower. It is our refuge. It is the Lord himself in which during the trials and the rainy seasons and the hardships and crises of life, he is there to defend us. He is there to keep us. In Deuteronomy 10, darn, I should have bookmarked it. Deuteronomy 10, and I think it's verse 12 through 22 we see God telling his people Israel to fear him in obedience. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God. So Moses, what does fearing the Lord your God look like? I'll tell you. To walk in all his ways and love him to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I commanded you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is to this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen not your neck any longer. So let me ask you one question. What causes us to bring honor and obedience to someone? I know you wrote that down a couple weeks ago. I brought this question up before. What is it? Love, okay. Respect. Respect. Why would you respect someone? Fear, okay. Fear of what? They are either, why would you respect or honor someone? Authority. Authority. There you go. So number one, we respect or honor people because of position. 
So your boss, the CEO of a company, the president of the United States, they hold an office and therefore it inherently <laughs> causes respect. It should cause us to honor at least the position. There's another way in which people gain respect. How? Hey, they earn it. Imagine that. You earn respect through doing what is good and right and blessing other people or having a position in which garners respect or in, in a perfect world, both. Both position and performance. When we see God, he says, fear me. And then he tells us why. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of hosts, the great, the mighty, the awesome God. That's position. And here's his performance. Who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. He is your praise. He is your God who has done these great things, great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all. And now the Lord, your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. And guess what? We started with 12 in an upper room and now we're at 2 billion. So God's doing his thing, even in this broken down, decaying, fallen world. So fear is terror of God's judgment, reverence of God's position and his merit and obedience because of who the Lord is. And then we see what are the results. You have strong confidence, refuge, a strong tower and a strong hold, and you will never be shaken. You will sleep well, and you will not be visited by fear. God says, if you fear me, if you honor me, if you cause your walk to be an obedience, I will be a refuge to you. And in a time of crisis, this is what people need. They need to be safe. They need to have security. They need to know everything's going to be okay. When everything's falling apart, you need understanding. You need wisdom. You need um, knowledge. And you need to know that the Lord has your back. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7, the uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the understanding of the Holy One. And here we see the fear of the Lord is strong confidence that we can run to him in refuge. Now I'll close with this. There are two areas or two pictures that God shows himself as refuge in the Old Testament. Does anybody know what they are? There are two pictures that are over again, kind of the overarching painting of God the Father's nature. The cross, nope. In the Old Testament, God shows himself as a refuge in two primary ways. Number one, as a strong tower 
or a fortress, a military compound. And this shows God's might. This shows God's strength. This shows God's victory at war. And the Bible says we are to run to that fortress, run to God as our safe haven. In uh, Psalms chapter 27 and verse 1, David says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the refuge of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamped around me, my heart will not fear. Though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. So God is a refuge in the sense of power. There's one other picture in the Old Testament of God and his refuge. Anybody know what that is? It's found in Isaiah, Proverbs, Psalms. It's found throughout. It's an animal, close. No? Well, the Bible says this, we will hide under his wings. It's the picture of mama bird. That not only is God the Father a powerful, mighty warrior in whom all your enemies will be laid down, but God is also tender, compassionate, loving, merciful, and nurturing. And so you have both sides. We just got done focusing on the family. And you see the the importance of father and mother. Father is to be leader, mighty, protector, strength. Mother, nurturing, loving, compassionate, all of those wrapped up in the person of our God. In Psalm 36, 7, It says, how precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. Where do we see that? The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. In your light, we see light. And then lastly, Psalm 91.7 or 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for it is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you, sh- you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. So God will honor you He'll meet you in your crisis. He will give you the comfort. He'll give you the desire. He'll give you the power. He'll give you the wisdom. And he'll give you the clarity you need to get through. Our jobs is to fear him through his judgments, through reverence and honor, and through being obedient, simply saying, yes, Lord. And the trials themselves will work together for your good. Romans 8, 28. The good, the bad, and the ugly will propel you forward. It will make you a better you. 
Romans 5 says, trials and tribulations produce hope and hope never fails. James chapter one says, trials produce the perfect character, the perfect man. They drain away and they burn off the dross of your life so that you can be pure before the holy God. I promise you this, if you honor God, he'll honor you no matter what you're going through. You dishonor God, you will be dishonored. I want to close just with something that I was thinking about even yesterday. I I saw, we got to saw firsthand the fear of the Lord, both terror and reverence and obedience, and I should have asked if it was okay, in the life of Brian and Kim. Brian's here and his wife, Kim. Remember their, their second child, Emery, Remember, he was born. There was problems with his CPU and his motherboard. And so the doctors, what they had to do? They had to crack his head wide open. You have a a little child, an infant, and doctors are going in and messing with the hardware up in the brain. And I remember the faith and the faithfulness that both Brian and Kim were going through. I mean, they were so faithful to the Lord. They were honoring of God. They didn't drop the ball in ministry here. They, they never stopped. They just put God forward. In all things, they honored him. They respected him. And God worked incredible things through that event. And then I'm looking now two years. Is it two years now? Three years? Three years later, and I've seen Brian's faith explode. I see Kim's uh, knowledge of scripture explode. I'm watching God honoring those who honored them at one of the lowest, deepest, hardest, darkest moments of their life. They never complained. They never pointed at God. They never said, woe is me. They always said, God is faithful. God is good. They revered, they feared, they honored him, and God has blessed them tenfold. Like we got to see that firsthand. And that's an incredible testament and testimony to some of our leaders in this church. I promise you, fear the Lord, and you don't have to fear anything else. With that, like two-hour sermon, let's pray. (laughs) Father, we just thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, O Holy Father, for all that you've done. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your discipline. And God, practically, when we get smacked with the trials of life, Proverbs 35 says the word of God is a shield. So we can run to the refuge of your word and find peace. The Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will never be put to shame. And so in life's trials, call upon God in prayer. Father, for the pain that we feel in the circumstances that we face right now, I pray for peace that passes all understanding. I pray for a contentment and a humility to go through life's trials the right way. God, may we fear you in all ways, so that we can serve you always. In Jesus' name, amen.
And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.